I remember fairly vividly, actually, when my parents sat me down for a warning. Now, probably virtually any of you here today who are my age, or at least in that general ballpark, remember a, a similar warning that you likely received from your parents. My parents sat me down and said, you have to be very careful. You have to watch out. Because if someone asks you to get in a car with them or to come with them, don't do it. You have to run. You have to say no. You have to, if they come after you, shout for help. They, they, we probably have all, right, have received a kind of warning. And I say those of you who are my age or around my age especially because it was when I was a child that we were all shook and shocked by the Jacob Wetterling tragedy. That was 1989. It was right around the time when I was a child, when some of you were children, and our entire state, our entire country was rocked by the evil and the, the wickedness that befell that young child. And, and, and this idea of warnings, if you're a parent, you know what it is to give warnings. You warn your children about small things. You warn your children about big things. Don't touch that wire. Don't touch that stove. This will happen. Beware. People in this community know it is to warn their children about how to treat certain people in authority, police or others, how to avoid danger. This is a part of what all of us know to be a parent or Conversely, to be a child. And I start here because we need a little bit of the context for where we've been. If you're, it's your first time here this morning, or if, or if you haven't been following along with your series, you, you may have heard the reading this morning and felt like you were an alien plopped down out of outer space. Jesus talking about people being killed, about people being betrayed. And what world are we in? Well, we're just moving through the Gospel of Mark together. And we have reached a point in the Gospel of Mark when Jesus is answering a question from his disciples. Actually, really two questions. If you'll notice in chapter 13 of Mark and verse number 4, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked Jesus privately, tell us, when shall these things be? What things? These things be the destruction of the temple. When shall these climactic events occur? And then also, and what shall be the sign when all these things shall be fulfilled? So they were asking a question that had a reference to the short term ahead. As we've talked about, the Jewish temple was destroyed, utterly knocked down to the ground about 40 years after Jesus said this. So they're asking him, tell us, when are these these incredible things going to happen. And what's going to be the sign when all these things shall be fulfilled? And now Jesus is looking off into the distant future, into the end times, the last days. In fact, where we might see that we reside in certain ways today. And, and as we looked at last week, we, we were asking the question when Jesus was talking about these labor pains that he was anticipating the, the whole world to go through, we talked about the question, was Jesus talking about only past things? Or was he talking about future things? And the answer we gave was yes. 
He was talking about things in the near term, even those that encompass us today. And he was also talking about something in the far term, a future kind of global event and catastrophe and difficulty that will befall the earth at a prophetic future someday. In other words, it has an immediate, a short-term application. And it has a very long-term application from what he was saying. And, and I start here because this really is what we should also think of when we're listening to Jesus' words, his warning on persecution. Notice what Jesus says, will you, in verse number 9 of Mark 13. He says, but take heed to yourselves, for they shall deliver you up to councils. That's the idea of religious bodies. You'll be put on trial for your religious beliefs before councils like the Jewish Sanhedrin. And he says, and in the synagogues you shall be beaten, and you shall be brought before rulers and kings for my sake, for a testimony against them. He goes on to say in verse 12 that the brother shall betray the brother to death. And the father, the son, and children shall rise up against their parents and shall cause them to be put to death. And ye shall be hated of all men for my name's sake. You'll be hated of everyone, he says. Now we should ask ourselves the same question. Is he only speaking of some point in the past? This was only for the disciples of his day. Or is he looking ahead to the future and saying, at some point way in the future, at some point thousands of years in the future, there's going to be this fulfillment. And again, I'm going to lead us to my view that the right answer is both. He was speaking words that have been fulfilled in the past, at least in part, that are being fulfilled today, at least in part, and that will be fulfilled in the future, finally and completely. But also what I want to comment on this morning is what his warning is to all of the Christians that are listening, including us. Notice what he, how he begins verse 9. He says, but take heed to yourselves. Watch out to yourselves. Now that should be odd, shouldn't it? Well, doesn't that strike us as a little bit strange? When you warn your children about danger, about evil people around you who, who, who intend to harm them, what do you say? Watch out for them, right? Watch out for people with bad intentions. Watch out for them. What does Jesus say? Watch out for whom? Those evil people that are going to be seeking to harm you and abuse you and even kill you? Is that what he says? Watch out for whom? Yourselves. Well, that's strange. Well, friends, maybe it's not so strange. When in verse 13 he tells us, But he that shall endure unto the end, the same shall be saved. Take heed to yourselves. 
Because whoever endures to the end, the same will be saved. What does he mean by that? What does he mean when he warns us to beware of ourselves? Well, what I encourage us to look at this morning are three certainties that he says have, in my view, had their partial fulfillment in the past, are being partially fulfilled today, and will finally be fulfilled in the future. Three certainties. And the title of the message this morning, I'm going to call simply this, Certainties of Last Days Living. Certainties of Last Days Living. Will you notice with me? He says first in verse 9, For they shall deliver you up to councils. They will do it. He says in verse 10, the gospel must first be published among all nations. He says in verse 12, now the brother shall betray. This is a certainty. In verse 13, he says, and ye shall be hated of all men for my name's sake. But he that shall endure to the end, the same shall be saved. Three certainties that we'll look at here this morning to try to understand what Jesus is speaking of here in Mark 13. The first certainty is this, the certainty of persecution. The second certainty we will look at is the certainty of purpose. And the third certainty we will look at is the certainty of preservation. The certainty of persecution, the certainty of purpose, the certainty of preservation. Let's start with the certainty of persecution. And I just want to step back from the text for a little bit to talk about what persecution really is. You maybe have heard the word before, to be persecuted. The idea of that word is to chase someone. That's the original Greek word that we have in the Bible that's used for persecution. It is to chase. And that's what it feels like and has felt like for Christians throughout the history of the church. They have been chased. They have been pursued. They have been threatened. Notice what he says. He gets to the heart of this persecution when in verse number 9, he says, And ye shall be brought before rulers and kings for my sake. For my sake. Persecution in Jesus' eye is the harassment and abuse, and even violence done to Christians for his sake, simply because they identify with Jesus Christ. Oh, you're a Christian? Then I will do this harmful, painful, violent thing to you. It is persecution. And the certainty that we can say, first of all, is that Christians have experienced this exact form of persecution throughout the history of the church. Indeed, you could go through every single thing that Jesus lists here in these five verses that we're looking at, verses 9 through 13, and find a Christian who has suffered exactly that. Notice the first one. Ye shall be brought, they shall deliver you up to councils, and in the synagogues ye shall be beaten. Well, the last three Sunday evenings, we looked at the example of Stephen, 
a very godly man in the New Testament in Acts, we read about him in Acts chapter 6 and Acts chapter 7, who was brought before the Sanhedrin, the Jewish Supreme Court, and they accused him of being a blasphemer, and they stoned him to death. The, the idea that, that the Jews of that day would have understood a later Jewish treatise testifies that to stone someone, you would take them up to a height twice a man, about 10 to 12 feet off the ground, and you would push them over, and they would fall. And if they died, so be it. That was great. If not, the witness who was the one responsible for their guilty verdict would take a big stone and drop it on their chest, right on their heart. And if that killed them, so be it. And if not, the group would take large stones and throw them at that person until they died. That was how Stephen, one of the heroes of the early church, was killed. This is something that not only Stephen, but many others. What about the next thing he says about the being brought before rulers and kings? For my sake. Well, you can look at the Apostle Paul as just one example in Acts chapter 26, who was taken before King Agrippa and testified to his faith before them. This same Paul, he eventually was put his head on an executioner's block, and he was, we believe, beheaded for the cause of Christ. And again, friend, you can go throughout history and see over and over and over again people who have been brought before religious councils have been brought before kings and rulers who have executed them as martyrs for their testimony of Jesus Christ. Keep on going. What else does he say? He says in verse 12, Now the brother shall betray the brother to death, and the father, the son, and children shall rise up against their parents and shall cause them to be put to death. He's saying that there will be this kind of breakdown of family relationships. That the tightest bonds that we have in society, the love between our own family members, will be overwhelmed by the hatred for Christians, those who testify to the name of Christ. That in fact there will be family members betraying family members. Has that occurred in the Christian church? You better believe it. You can look in Luke chapter 12 and verse 52 and verse 53. Jesus says simply from henceforth this is what's going to happen. This isn't just something way in the future that Jesus is looking at. This is something that his own disciples would have experienced. And it's still being experienced today. Many of you know our friend Medea. Shahid, a woman from Pakistan who came to college here in the United States who gave her life to Jesus Christ. And many of you know her testimony of, of the very great difficulty she experienced from family back home in Pakistan and, and her community. She truly has experienced the, the betrayal, the persecution of those who were supposed to support her. My understanding is that in recent years, those relationships again have been restored to a certain measure. But nonetheless, she, living in Pakistan for a time, experienced significant opposition and persecution. This is happening all over the world. In fact, in, in many Muslim countries today, if you identify with Jesus Christ, if you convert to Christianity, your family will view it as their duty to kill you or to have you killed. This is 
the suffering that Jesus is talking about here, that these family breakdowns will lead not to the protection of Christians, but to the persecution of believers. And what about what he says when he says, and ye shall be hated of all men for my name's sake? Is this only something looking into the very distant future? No. Jesus himself said in John 15, if the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of this world, the world would love his own. But because you are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hateth you. He says, you should just expect this. This is something that has been throughout the history of the Christian church. So we can say this word of Jesus has been at least partially fulfilled. It is being partially fulfilled today around the world. And yet, we can also say that it will finally and completely be fulfilled in the future. And I'll just make a note of this. You can go look at it on your own. I encourage you to do that. Revelation 6 and Revelation 7 appear to speak of a future time when this persecution against the followers of Jesus Christ will even be more intense and more global than it is today. We can read the book of Revelation and generally see the kinds of future events that await followers of Jesus Christ. And that is why I believe, again, Jesus is speaking of a general kind of expectation, a general kind of preparation that we should have to be opposed, and also speaking of a specific future, complete fulfillment of these warnings. So what's the uncertainty? If if the certainty is that this kind of persecution has been going on, is going on today, and will go on in the future, what is the only uncertainty? The only uncertainty is not whether you will be persecuted if you follow Christ. That's not the uncertainty. In fact, listen to what Paul says in 2 Timothy 3. He says, yes, or yea, and all that will live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Did you hear that word? All? Do you, know, do you know we're part of the all? Paul says, Christians here at Straight Gate Church in the 21st century, if you will live godly in Christ Jesus, you will suffer persecution. Now, it may not be this kind of persecution. You may not be betrayed by your family. You may not be killed one day as a martyr for the faith. You may never be brought for a root before a ruler or a king. You may never be delivered up to a religious council, but we can be certain of this one thing. We will be opposed. Here's what John says in 1 John chapter 3. He says, marvel not, my brethren, if the world hate you. You know, he's saying, don't be surprised if the world hates you. Why? Because they hated our Lord. He came to deliver. He came to heal. He came to show the greatest love that had ever been given. And what did they do? They hung him on a cross. And he said, if they hated me, don't be surprised when they hate you. All that will live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Now, just a word on that. I remember speaking to a younger man once, a very, very passionate younger man. He really was seeking revival among the Christian church and I remember him saying to me, and I'm just paraphrasing, but he said, you know, I guess, I guess we're just going to have to have some persecution to get to the place of real revival. We're just going to have to have some persecution. And it was almost like he was, let's go. 
Let, let's face it. Let's get into the persecution and, and then our church will be revived. Well, I, I hesitate to say that's not really a Christian idea. We don't pursue persecution. Per persecution pursues us. We don't desire, in this sense, persecution. We don't stand here and open our arms and say, bring it on, like, like we're some tough people. No. In fact, in, in 1 Timothy chapter 2, Paul tells us that we are to pray for all men and for kings and for who all, all are that are in authority. That means our president. That means our Supreme Court. That means our governor of the state. That means our mayor. That means our city council. We should pray for all of them. Why? Here's what Paul says. So that, so that ye may lead a quiet and peaceable life in godliness and all honesty. What do we pray for? We desire to lead a quiet and peaceable life. We don't desire, we don't pursue persecution. Persecution pursues us. In fact, Paul says in Romans chapter 12, if it be possible, as much as lies in you, live peaceably with all men. What are we? We want to live at peace. We want to live quiet lives. We want to love people. We want to seek the good of our city. We want to seek the good of our country. We want to pursue good for everyone. But the reality is, the certainty is, that in pursuing good for all, in exhibiting God's love and compassion in the salvation of sinners, we will be persecuted if we are to live godly in Christ Jesus. So notice the first certainty. The first certainty Jesus is saying both for his own disciples, for our disciples today, and for those who will come in the future. This is a certainty. We will experience persecution even though it may not necessarily be of exactly this same kind. That's why, secondly, we need to understand a certainty of purpose. A certainty of purpose. I just want to, to note a couple of interesting things that he says. In verse number 9, after saying that we'll be delivered up to councils and in the synagogues to be beaten, he says, you shall be brought before rulers and kings for my sake. And will you read that next phrase with me out loud? for a testimony against them. Now that's a little bit strange, isn't it? You'll be brought before rulers and kings for a testimony against them. Now here's an interesting point. That word testimony there that's translated testimony in our Bible is the Greek word marturion. And you probably have an idea of what it meant when you saw it written out. M-A-R-T-Y-R is how it starts. Martyr? What's a martyr? Well, we think of a martyr as someone who gives their life for what they believe. They are martyred for the faith. Do you know what that word marturion meant in the original Greek? It just meant someone who gives witness, who testifies. Like if you were to go down to the Hennepin County Courthouse this week and you were to place your right hand in the air and you were to swear or affirm to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help you, God, and you were to testify in a legal proceeding? That's what the word meant. You're testifying. You're giving a witness. You say, well, how did it come to mean someone who was killed for his faith? Because that was its own testimony. It was its own witness. When you said, I am standing on the truth of who Jesus Christ is, and you can kill me for it, it was a witness. It was a testimony. But do you see what the idea here is Jesus is saying? They're going to bring you before kings, important people, and what's the purpose behind it? You're going to testify. You're going to speak to them. 
And do you know that's been true across the entire history of the Christian church? When Christians have been persecuted, it has been their mouthpiece, it has been their microphone, it has been their speaker system to blast out to everyone who will hear the truth about who Jesus is. Paul was brought before a king named Agrippa, and he boldly proclaimed the truth of who Jesus was and his resurrection from the dead. This is a testimony. It is about him, but it is a testimony for him. Tertullian was a great Christian leader, and around the year 200 AD, so again, about 1,800 years ago, right around 200 AD, he wrote his famous work that we call Apology, that really the idea is of a defense. He was giving a defense of the Christian faith to leaders in the Roman Empire. And he said these very famous words in a time of great persecution against Christians. Here's what he said. The more we are mown down by you, the more we grow. The blood of Christians is seed. The more we are mown down by you, the more we grow. The blood of Christians is seed. Now, I, a little picture came to mind. If any of you have maybe a, a yard, maybe you, like me, have been on a, on a war against dandelions. You know what I'm talking about? A war? I never can seem to win. Can you? If, if you? if you can win, can you show me how? Do you know what the problem is? Do you know what the most frustrating thing is? You take your mower out when the dandelions grow this high above, and you mow them down. And what do you do in the process? Those white seeds go everywhere around your yard. You mow them down, and the seeds cover your entire yard. And you say, well, that worked out really well. I, what are you supposed to do? I, I have no idea. You Come talk to me afterward if you've got the perfect idea. But that's the idea. Tertullian saying, you mow us down, you kill us, you persecute us, you abuse us. What just happens? The seeds go everywhere. The seeds spread. The blood of Christians, Tertullian said is seed. Now what an amazing purpose that is. Jesus says you're going to stand before kings and rulers and, and, and they're going to kill some of you. But you know what? The word's going to go out. In fact, notice what he says immediately next in verse 10. And the gospel must first be published among all nations. You see that? Before the end comes, he says. The good news of Jesus, who is the king of God's kingdom, who is inviting all to lay down the arms of their rebellion against him and enter into the kingdom by faith. That's the good news. The forgiveness of sins. The eternal life that comes in Jesus. That gospel, he says, will be published. It will be proclaimed to all nations. And friends, do you know that's exactly what's happening today? The gospel is being proclaimed to the whole world. By the way, there's another period of time in the future we can read of in the book of Revelation when that gospel will be proclaimed in perhaps the most fruitful telling it will ever receive in a time of dire tribulation and distress. But that's also what's happening today. The gospel is going out. In fact, in the book of 2 Peter in chapter 3, Peter is telling us that in the last days, our days, scoffers are going to come, mockers are going to come. Where's the promise of his coming? Where You've been waiting for him to come back for 2,000 years. Where's this Jesus that you're telling us of? And do you know what he says? 
2,000 years ago nearly. He said, what is it? It's the long-suffering of our God. Why? Because he is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. If there is a delay in the purposes of God in Jesus coming back to earth, it is the proclamation of the gospel to all nations because it is God's mercy. It is his long suffering to send the good news of his truth to the entire world. This certainty of purpose is that it's, this persecution is about him. It's for his sake, for his name. It is for him because there's a testimony that is going out to him. But notice also very briefly that it is through him. Will you notice here in verse number 9? I'm sorry, in verse number 11. He said, when they shall lead you and deliver you up, take no thought. Don't worry beforehand what ye shall speak. Neither do ye premeditate. Don't worry about preparing a fancy speech in advance. But whatsoever shall be given you in that hour, that speak ye, that's what you should speak. For it is not you that speak but the Holy Ghost, the Holy Spirit. What an amazing promise that is. That when Christians are persecuted for the name of Christ, the gospel is being proclaimed and is being spread. And not only that, it is the Holy Spirit that is the one that is doing the speaking. Let me just tell you, friends, all that will live godly in Christ will suffer persecution, including you. But don't worry. Don't fear. There's a purpose behind it when you suffer. It is to advance the cause of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And when you are confronted by persecution, when you are confronted by this kind of difficulty and danger, Jesus says it's the Holy Spirit who is going to be supporting and encouraging and speaking through his people. What a wonderful certainty that is. What a wonderful promise that is. There's the certainty of persecution, both past, present, and future. There is the certainty of God's purpose in it, both past, present, and future. And that's why I want to look finally at what I'm going to call the certainty of preservation. The certainty of preservation. And it starts here in verse number 13. He says, and ye shall be hated of all men for my name's sake. But he that shall endure unto the end, the same shall be saved. Will you admit with me for just a moment there's a little mystery there? He that shall endure to the end, the same shall be saved. You say, what, what, what does that mean? What, what does he mean by, by being saved? Well, there are some very good and very godly teachers that very sincerely believe that Jesus means being saved here means nothing more than you will be delivered from the difficulty. You will be delivered from the persecution. It's not a spiritual salvation. It is only a physical salvation. And, and what they would say is it's just very simple. If you endure to the end of the time of persecution, the persecution ends and now you're saved. Now you're delivered. You're out of it. You're out of the period of that persecution and difficulty. I don't think that's what Jesus means. I don't think that's what he means. For a couple reasons. One reason is this. Did you notice what he's talking about here? He's talking about some people being killed. He doesn't seem to be talking about a physical kind of deliverance. He's saying, boys, beware. Some of you are going to be killed. But if you endure to the end, you're going to be saved. Well, they just died. 
In fact, in Luke chapter 21, Luke records the same sermon that Jesus taught his disciples, but, but he comes at it with additional instruction that Jesus gave. Listen to what he says. He says in verse 16, And ye shall be betrayed both by parents and brethren and kinsfolks and friends, and some of you shall they cause to be put to death. Okay? Some of you are going to die. And he goes on to say this in verse 18, But there shall not in hair of your head perish. That, that's a mystery, right? They're going to kill you, but not one hair of your head is going to die. Je Jesus, what? Did you just hear what you said, the part about killing me? Right? So what is he getting at? Well, I think in Luke chapter 21, we get an idea when he says this. In your patience or your endurance, possess you your souls. You'll possess your souls. You'll possess your souls. I don't believe he's talking about just a physical deliverance. He's talking about this. He's talking about a spiritual deliverance. He's talking about your salvation. Your, indeed, eternal salvation coming through the endurance even in the face of difficulty and persecution. And I say this because this is something the Bible teaches elsewhere. I'll just give you a couple notes, a couple references. You can go look at them on your own time and make sure that I'm not leading you astray here. I encourage you to go and check. Here's what he says. In James 1, verse 12, he said, Blessed is the man that endures temptation. For when he is tried, when he is tested, he shall receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to them that love him. When he is tried, when he goes through persecution and difficulty, he endures, he gets a crown of life which God gives him. Listen to Revelation chapter 2 and verse 10. For fear none of those things which thou shalt suffer. Behold, the devil shall cast some of you into prison, that you may be tried. And you shall have tribulation ten days. Be thou faithful unto death, and I will give thee a crown of life. Endure unto death. And Jesus says, I will give you a crown of life. Listen to Hebrews chapter 3 and verse 14. The author of Hebrews says, For we are made partakers of Christ. We have been made partakers of Christ. We've entered the kingdom of God. If, if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast unto the end. How do you know, friend, that you have been, that you have been born again into the kingdom of God? Because, in part, you persevere to the end. You endure and we shouldn't be threatened by this doctrine as if what I'm teaching here this morning is you earn your way to heaven if you endure. Not for a moment. Oh, pastor, are you teaching that, that I work my way to heaven by believing and then holding on and, and that's what gets me there? No, not at all. Not for a moment. Here's what I'm suggesting. I'm suggesting that what Jesus is teaching about our salvation is not earning our way to heaven. It's revealing something about us. It's revealing something. You say, what? Let me make a simple point to you. This is true in everything. Do you know that whatever is valuable to you, what is most valuable to you, is revealed by what you endure for it? 
Let me say it again. You can know what is most valuable to you in life by what you are willing to suffer for its sake. Did you know that? Moms, you know this perfectly well. Moms, what was a treasure to you as a mom was your child. And how did you prove it? Because for those of you who are biological mothers, you went through perhaps the most traumatic experience that any human being regularly goes through, childbirth. You endured out of love for your child. You experienced sleepless nights for that child. You suffered through their sickness, probably worse than they were suffering. You endured long hours. You endured sacrificing or shortchanging your career or other opportunities that you had to pursue, to live and devote yourself for the good of your child. What did it prove? It proved your love. It proved your treasure, your child. And that's simply true of anything else. Look at an Olympic athlete. What does it take to be an Olympic athlete? What does it take to endure far more than most of us would be willing to endure. I remember reading a story about Caleb Dressel, one of the most accomplished swimmers who ever has swum, a multi-gold medalist at the Olympics, and I still remember him talking about his typical day. He said on a typical day, he wakes up, has a quick snack, and is at the gym by 7 a.m. for a two-hour wait session. A two-hour wait session. Then he hits the pool for a two-hour workout after a two-hour wait session. After a break for lunch, work time, and maybe a nap, he's back in the water at 5.30 p.m. for another swim. And then he wakes up and he does it again the next day. Now, why does Caleb Dressel do that? Because he treasures something. He treasures an Olympic gold medal. He treasures the opportunity to be the best. And so what does he do? He endures more than you and I would be willing to endure physically. What's the point? The endurance here is exactly revealing what is valuable to us. What is our treasure? It is revealing, in other words, our faith. It's revealing what we believe. It's revealing whether when we say, Jesus I believe that you are the Son of God, that you died for my sins according to the Scriptures, that you rose again from the dead, that you're coming back one day to be the judge of all men, and that you are the author of eternal salvation. And when we say, Jesus, I believe, and then we die for what we believe, what's a witness to? It reveals that we believed. And do you know, friends, that is so much true when you look at what Jesus is talking about here in context. What is he speaking of? He's speaking of Christians being humiliated and disgraced when they're beaten publicly. He speaks of Christians having the betrayal of those they love the most. Their fathers, their mothers, their children, their siblings. The ones they love on earth the most will betray them to put them to death. He speaks of the kind of end of life, what we naturally as humans value most, our lives, laying them down. What's, what's the point I think he's making? He's saying, am I your treasure? Do I value, do you value me in not only in what you say with your words, 
but what you are willing to endure with your life. And here's what Jesus said. That person who endures to the end, whose testimony about me is not just mashed by what they say, but what they are willing to suffer for me. He says that person is the one who will be saved. That is the person I will give a crown of life. What an incredible word. What an incredible challenge. You know, friend, I had to, to confront myself this week and ask myself this question. Peter, what do you value? What do you treasure? What, no, what really do you treasure? Because, friends, what we treasure more than Jesus is what we will abandon Jesus when it is threatened. Do you see that? If you value your family relationships more than Jesus, when your family threatens to excommunicate you for your faith, you'll abandon. You won't endure. When you love a comfy job and the income that it provides, when you treasure that more than you treasure Jesus, when it comes down, when that is threatened, Jesus will go behind your back. When you treasure your life more than you treasure the worth, the value of Jesus Christ, when you are confronted with death, Jesus will get thrown behind. Friends, what do you treasure this morning? What do you value more than anything else? Oh, I hope this morning that you can say honestly from your heart, what I treasure most in life is Jesus. What I value most is him, what he has done for me on the cross, and what he has promised for me eternally. What do I treasure? But then there's one more question I had to confront myself with. It was this. If that's what I treasure, what am I showing to others in what I value, in what I treasure? Do you remember what Jesus said here? He said when Christians are persecuted, it's going to be for a testimony. The gospel must be published to the entire world. And do you know what the world needs to see from us today, friends? Do you know what this very prosperous 21st century America needs to see from Christians today? They don't need to see us treasuring the same things that they do. They're going to say, what's different about you? You're pursuing money. You're pursuing comfort. You're pursuing a good, stable, happy, secure life. So are we. You're pursuing this kind of reputation. You're pursuing prestige and privilege. So are we. We can live on that ground. But what do they see when they see Christians who are willing to give up possessions and things to treasure Christ above all else? What do they see when they see Christians giving up comfort to go be a missionary to a foreign land and testify, I treasure Christ and his gospel more than anything else? What does your unsaved family see when they see you treasuring Christ above all else, even material comfort? What do your children see when they see Jesus being your ultimate value above all else? Do you know what they see? or maybe more accurately what they hear, they hear a witness. They hear a testimony by those who say, this is what I believe about Jesus of Nazareth. This is who I believe he is. And my life shows it. You know, friends, the certainties of last day living 
is that you and I are going to experience difficulty if we want to live godly lives. We will, even in 21st century America. We don't know exactly what that'll look like, but it'll be something. The other certainty is that there's going to be a purpose behind it for you to give testimony to who Jesus Christ is to you, that the gospel would be published. And here's the final certainty, is preservation. It's the preservation to recognize that God, in the midst of persecution, has you. He's holding you in his hand. He will enable you to endure. And the question, again, above all of it is this. What do I treasure most in this world? And secondly, how am I testifying to that in the way I live my daily life?